Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Violence against women is one of the most widespread, persistent, and devastating human rights violations in the world. The numbers are staggering. More than one in three women worldwide say they experienced physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. And this is likely a low estimate. Far too many women wake up every day with physical and mental scars caused by the people they trusted most, their boyfriends, husbands, and partners. The pandemic has made things worse. Confinement trapped millions of women at home with their abusers, unable to reach out for help and with nowhere to go. I am Monica Kweiser, and this episode is the first in our new OECD podcast series, Truth Hurts. In this series, we will explore what can be done to support survivors of intimate partner violence and how to prevent this abuse. My guest today is Charlotte Neer, Chief Executive Officer of Rygate and Barnstead Women's Aid in the United Kingdom. Charlotte runs a shelter for survivors of domestic violence, and she campaigns for better policies to save women's lives. Thank you for joining us, Charlotte. Let me start by asking you about your personal journey. What does ending violence against women mean to you? I run refuges in England now, but I came from a background of childhood domestic abuse and I suffered severe domestic abuse in my marriage. Um, I had children with my ex-husband and suffered, unfortunately, lots of different forms of coercive control for many years. And after I'd split up with my ex-husband, I remember thinking I'd like to help other women who have gone through domestic abuse and I'd like to help them kind of find freedom as I had. But what became clear really quickly to me when I started working in the refuge was that actually I still wasn't free myself. And at this time, my ex-husband, although we were separated and in fact we were, I think we were even divorced then, he was still having contact with the children, which was court ordered. Every time that he had the children, he would threaten me basically. And, and he used that time with the children not to kind of put his all into being with them, but actually to just maintain control over me. And there was one weekend where he refused to give one of my daughters back and then threatened me, threatened the guy that I was seeing. And I just thought, you know what, this is enough now. I've lived under this fear for so long. And I think working in the refuge gave me the strength to actually do something about it. And then ultimately, he was convicted of offences against me and two other women and got a prison sentence and extended probation under the Dangerous Offenders Act. But so I guess for me, it's been a journey of helping other women, but actually a journey of helping myself as well, which is not what I expected. Um, You said that you yourself were a victim of domestic abuse when you were a child. Do you think that having been a child victim already made you predestined almost to fall into a similar situation when you were an adult? Surviving domestic abuse as a child and then going on to have a relationship with somebody who was abusive. I think there's a definite connection I know that there are certain points that are crystal clear in my memory that I look back on and think, 
why did I think that way? So for example, I remember an occasion where I'd been assaulted quite severely. And I remember allowing him back into my life very quickly. And the overriding emotion that I felt at that time, which I remember with clarity, is that I felt sorry for him. And there was no reflection on what I deserved or what I should accept as you know, as a woman, as a human, what I should accept in that relationship, there was no reflection that that I deserved more. And I can only attribute that to having gone through that as a child, witnessing those struggles between my mum and my other parent at the time. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it was normalised for me. Abuse was something that I recognized as normal and therefore it's not surprising that when I was in an abusive relationship myself I thought that was normal too. A lot of the work that we do at the refuge with the women really is helping them to understand how the abuse happened because it's really confusing when you're in an abusive relationship how it's happened. People always say oh well I wouldn't put up with that I'd just leave but that's because they assume it's one punch or you know one episode of violence they don't understand that it's a whole pattern of behaviors designed to remove your human rights and to remove your ability to make decisions so we help the women unpick what's happened we run a program called the freedom program which sort of looks at tactics of a perpetrator and it helps them to identify what has happened to them and it also helps them in the future to identify what to look out for and how to avoid that. Yes, I read that when you started, one in five women would return to the abusive relationship. And you have, with your work, succeeded in reducing that number to one in 20. Yeah. That is really spectacular. How do you change these women's mindset to, to give them the confidence to not return afterwards? I think the first thing to recognize is how difficult it is to leave your life and start again. So everything that we do starts with that premise that we understand that it is incredibly difficult to walk out of your house one day and never go back to that life. For me, in my marriage, I left and went to a refuge and it was so incredibly difficult and I just couldn't do it. And I went back to the marriage the very next day what's important to understand is first of all it is the most difficult thing that you can possibly imagine and i look at it very much like the women and children who come to us are like refugees in their own country they've walked out of their homes with nothing but the clothes that they're wearing and they've been put somewhere very far away from their homes they're cut off from all of their social networks their families, their jobs, the schools for the children, their possessions, their pets. And so everything that we do starts from recognizing that actually they are going to be exceptionally vulnerable for the first few weeks that they come to us because that pull of going back is so strong to go back to the familiar. Although the familiar is awful, it's still the familiar and is going to be more appealing than the strength it's going to take to stay at our refuge. 
everything we do in the first few weeks is about wrapping those families up in cotton wool i guess that's the best way i could describe it is totally supporting their every need from the minute they make that first phone call to them arriving in the refuge and everything we do for the first few weeks is going to make the difference between them staying with us and them returning to that relationship so we need to be available all the time we also need to be aware of their mood their children's moods and we need to be there when we see that that woman looks like she's struggling we need to be there to say it's going to be okay you're going to feel like this for a couple of weeks but we're here we want to talk to you and we want to help you kind of go through whatever it is that you're feeling it must require quite a few both uh, staff but also financial resources to keep a structure going where you can give the survivors of domestic violence that type of very individualized attention yeah every woman and child has their own individual support plan it will always include sort of therapeutic input practical input sort of liaising with other agencies to provide support and you're right that requires funding and when people think about giving to charity they always think oh i want it to go directly towards the victims and they don't want it to go to pay staff costs but the reality is in a charity like ours providing refuge the value of what we do is in the support so if you give money to us for example as a charity that probably will go towards staff costs because actually it's those staff that are saving that woman and that child's life we've been hearing that the pandemic has made it so much more difficult and so much more dangerous for women who are locked up with the abusive husbands or partners and that much more help is needed what has your experience been with your work in the refuge with covid it's been horrific and that's the only way i can sum it up what we knew going into this lockdown was that it would be awful because we knew that women would be isolated with their abusers we knew that we would see a surge in women needing refuge spaces unfortunately there wasn't much action from central government there was a bit of money but not enough and it wasn't really directed in the right places in my opinion so what we've seen as an organization rbwa the, the organization that i run we've seen an almost 150% increase in women seeking spaces when the pandemic hit and when lockdowns hit for every single refuge room that we had we would have nine women trying to access that room if you imagine for us nine women trying to access one space what is happening to those eight women that couldn't get a space i've read a quote from you explaining how important it is also that local governments work together and that you create safety spaces across different uh, municipalities or local government uh, zones because the women often have to leave the immediate environment where they live because it's simply too dangerous to keep them close to the perpetrators women that come to us have to come from a long way away because if they were to stay in their local area they might bump into the perpetrator they might bump into someone he knows or a member of their family but this creates a problem 
in countries where you've got a central government but they've devolved all of their funding to local government so the problem created is that say a refuge like us is taking women from all different local areas across the country then what happens is the local government where we are says well why should we support these women they're not our local residents this is a really interesting point you're making, Charlotte, because it shows that it's not always only about money. Of course, money is important, but it's also about the way it's organized, it's allocated, and how these services can work across borders and coordinate to make sure that the women end up in the safest possible place together with their children and that these places are always there for need. Central government devolving responsibility to local government does work well in a lot of ways but in this case it doesn't work well so you need a legal mechanism to force really local governments to fund services that are for people that need them that come from outside their area. I would like to turn to something that you have experienced yourself, and I know that you've spent quite a lot of time thinking about this. When the perpetrators, so the abusive partners, husbands, boyfriends, severe cases, they're sent to prison, they come back, but then they start again. We're constantly trying to protect women. We're trying to give women the courage and strength to leave. But as societies, I believe we also have to do something about stopping the abuse altogether. Yeah. How can we stop that or is it possible at all? So I think that has two strands for me. I think if we're talking about preventing perpetrators, then I believe that has to start at a very early stage. So with young children being taught in schools about healthy relationships, about equality, because equality is so important and it's, it is a problem in terms of male violence against women. I don't know about other countries, but in the UK, there is hardly any input into what is a healthy relationship, what you should expect as a woman and what you shouldn't put up with, that kind of thing. If we're talking about men that are out there now that are offending repeatedly, then that's a different story. My personal view, and this is my personal view, is that there is not a huge amount that you can change with somebody that has that entrenched behavior. If a perpetrator recognizes what he's doing and has the willingness to want to change, then there is a chance that a program could help him and he could stop offending. But Unfortunately, perpetrator programs here in the UK, at least, are usually used as a sort of exercise if somebody's been through court, you know, been accused of something, been convicted, let's put him on a perpetrator program that ticks that particular box. Well, that doesn't work. It's not going to change anything. Um, what we need to be doing is to be much more proactive about managing perpetrators. And one of the campaigns I've been involved with recently is to create a database, a register, which is very much like the sex offenders register that we've got here in the UK, where serial offenders are on a register and they're managed effectively. So my ex-husband, for example, had a seven-year sentence, convicted of abusing three women, including me, finishes his seven-year sentence, that's it. Nobody's ever gonna contact him again. His management is over. 
what would happen with a perpetrator register like the one we're campaigning for is that he would go on that register as a serial offender and he would be proactively managed. So if he started a new relationship, there would be intervention. Now, I was thinking about another case we had here in the UK where a woman was unfortunately murdered by a stalker. It turned out after she was murdered, she'd reported five times to the police. On one occasion, she actually got a ticket for wasting police time. What transpired after the murder was that the guy that had been stalking her had stalked 11 other women. If we managed to get this serial perpetrator and stalker register in, what would have happened was that those 11 other women that he'd stalked, had they reported, he would have gone on a register and at the very first report that this woman made, the register would have been checked and he would have been identified as a serious threat. That didn't happen. So you can see that there needs to be much more effective management of serial perpetrators. I mean, ultimately, you can't lock them up and throw away the key for the rest of their life, but you do need to manage their behaviour. And at the moment, there just is no system that is managing behaviour post-probation. I think that's something that happens in a lot of countries and that often the police are not prepared enough to recognize the story you just told is truly horrific in that this woman who got killed was accused of wasting police time. I think we also need to work with the criminal justice system, with the police forces that they get trained and to, to recognize abuse on time and, and how to deal with that. Yeah. One of the problems in that particular case that I was talking about where the woman reported and wasn't believed, one of the issues we need to address is the attitudes of the professionals in the criminal justice system. So for example, in this particular case, the police officer who dealt with the first report, it was concluded after investigation that he made a character judgment on this woman. And it's that kind of attitude and the misogyny that we need to drive out of our criminal justice institutions. And in fact, until we change that and address that, we're never going to make any progress. There's another topic that you raised before, and that's connected to the families being affected. Because yes, the perpetrators are dangerous for the women, but they're also the fathers of children. And how should one best manage the rights and the well-being perhaps of children who also need to see their father and who might not actually be in danger in every situation? I think the domestic abuse bill in the UK that is going to be going through soon, hopefully, has made a huge step in this. And I think it should be celebrated nationally and globally in that they are recognising children as victims of domestic abuse in their own right rather than what has been in the past, which is that children have been viewed as witnesses or secondary victims to domestic abuse. I'm not saying in all cases the perpetrator shouldn't have contact with the children, but I believe that in most cases, if that person, that perpetrator, is a threat to the children's mother, then he will go on to be a threat to the next girlfriend partner that he has. And the children that he's having contact with 
will be in that situation so they will still continue to be suffering domestic abuse if he's having contact with them and this is the one thing that i don't think family courts really think about when the mother and father are living together with the children and the mother's suffering domestic abuse and the children are suffering domestic abuse the one protective factor those children have is the mother once that relationship's over and it comes to awarding contact to the father in the future, if he's with a new partner who he's likely to be abusive towards because we know that it's a serial thing, then who is protecting those children? So my belief is that we need to identify the perpetrators who are serial perpetrators. And if that is the case, then I don't believe that children should continue to have contact with that person. And, you know, that may be a really unpopular opinion. We need better data on what it means for a child to continue to see the abusive parent and what it means for the child to not be seeing the abusive parent. And I think once we have the data on that, I suspect it will become clear that actually the children that didn't see the abusive parent had better outcomes than the ones that were forced to see the abusive parent. But without the data, it's difficult to say. I hear you saying that we need actually a lot more information in many different areas. We need more information on serial perpetrators. We need more information on the impact. We need more information on how prevalent this is so that we can indeed have a global campaign against misogyny. If you think about the OECD, so we work with governments, we identify good policy practices and encourage our member countries to share them so that we can all learn from each other and find out what works and what doesn't work. You as a practitioner, if you had to set up a little wish list for us at the OECD, what you would like us to focus on first? I mean, any data, I would welcome any data on any of the things that we've discussed today from other countries that have had campaigns perhaps about misogyny that have worked, studies done on family court best practice, yeah, strategies to manage perpetrators. I'd like more data about if countries have successfully implemented early education for children about healthy relationships, um, I'd like to see data from those countries about what impact that had on the level of perpetrators in adulthood there are so many areas that we need to learn from but i also think what's become apparent to me today talking to you is that we are in some ways in the uk making some really great changes through this domestic abuse bill so i'd hope that other countries might be able to learn from us when that's eventually implemented thank you very much charlotte for your time to learn more about the OECD's work on violence against women, please go to www.oecd.org gender. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com OECD.